This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BitFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Anthony Mullins. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. And it's great to have you. And I, I do have to tell the audience that I'm talking to you at 5 to 5 on a Monday evening, or late afternoon, and <laughs> it's pushing 2 o'clock in the morning um, where Anthony is in Brisbane, which is a which is a, which was a surprise when I came on the call. Worth so. staying up for. you're very kind you're very kind but we've not come here to talk about time differences we're here to talk about Anthony's book Beyond the Hero's Journey Crafting Powerful and Original Character Acts for the Screen which is out now and I will put a link in the show notes to where people can get that from and we're going to do my five times five format picking apart your book in five easy steps but before we do that do do you want to give people a sort of introduction to who you are that, that sort of put you in the position where you go I want to write a book about this. So I'm a, uh, a writer and director. I've been doing that for about 20 years, um, mostly in TV drama uh-huh. here in Australia. Uh, and my career kicked off uh, in fairly in fairly sort of uh, spectacular uh, fashion when one of my first short films got into official competition at the Cannes Film Festival. No mean uh, feat, my word. Stop. Yeah, and it's, uh, things kicked off very well. And uh, and off the back of that, I was able to get one of my first TV writing gigs, which happened to be two uh, spin-off uh, web series of the uh, TV show Lost. Um, and uh, so it was, a, it was a, that huge US show Lost, and I was oh. doing these two spin-off web series from here in Australia, actually. We actually produced the whole thing here in Australia. Wow. And one of them won an Emmy Award, uh, which was kind of out of, you know, just amazing. I, I, I didn't even know there was a category in the Emmys for what we were doing. but And off the back of that, I ended up doing a couple of other spin-offs for Spooks, which is your beloved spy show uh, yeah. in the UK, and, um, and Emmerdale, um, your beloved soap, which is... I don't know, how old is Emmerdale now? Like 60 years old or something? It's amazing. Something like that, yes. And um, and off the back of that, uh, won a couple of BAFTAs uh, for the work that that I, I did on those um, on those shows as well. And, and from there I started working as a TV development uh, executive for a company called Matchbox Pictures here in Australia. And 
uh, one of the, I mean, the, it was it was the best sort of uh, TV writing experience of my life, really, um, where I, I got to develop and script edit a show called Safe Harbour, which I believe, I think it might have shown on Channel 4 in the okay. UK, but um, it went on to win Best Miniseries at the 2018 uh, International Emmys. And so it's sort of that that sort of track record kind of set me up to become what's called a script producer mm-hmm. in Australia. Uh, I'm, I think it's called a script producer in, in the UK. Uh, but basically uh, my job is to run the writer's rooms on uh, shows. So I'm sort of like a creative producer. I kind of oversee the, the scripts through development and then production. Right. And so a couple of shows that you might have heard of in the UK more recently is Five Bedrooms. Um, I worked on the first season of that and helped develop the show and another one called Nowhere Boys. Which so is, you're um, not you're not the sh- you're not the showrunner, but you oversee no. the showrunners' production, as it were, the script part of it. So the way it works in Australia, and it's kind of changing. Like we're starting to adopt the the showrunner model of the hmm. US, but in Australia, uh, the 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 oftentimes the the script producer you just they, they just run the the script department. So through development and help put the writers' room together. And uh, and then move it through development uh, to it being production ready, and then take it through production as well. Right. And if you're the creator of the show, then generally you take on that that script producer role. Uh, um, but not all creators want to do that role because it's it's a lot of wrangling between the broadcasters, the producers, and the writers, and the and the script producers, the one that sort of moves between them all, mm. tries to get them all cooperating. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, when it's working well, it's just the best job. It's just so great. But when it's not working well, everyone hates you. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> because you're the one that's trying to get everyone on the same page. And but I, I you know, I've I've been lucky enough to. Um, to, you know, that that's the sort of role that I, I find myself in a lot of the time. Um, so it's not a showrunner, um, yeah. but it's a, it's it's sort of running the, the script department. But, in, but obviously in, 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 the, in all those experiences you, do, you you describe, there's a there's a lot of scripts coming through your through your hands and a lot of scripts you're working on. So I guess what was yeah. the what was the sort of spark then that goes from I think I'm, you know, I've got a lot of experience of what makes a good script. I've, I've worked on some, you know, I, you can, you can say there's an award for something I can prove, you know, there's an objectable proof that this was good as it were. Yeah. But what, what was it about your own personal understanding that made you think, I think there's some things I should, I could be writing down here that, that will be useful for other writers. There's, there's these are the ideas in the book have been sort of hanging around for a long time, but I've worked a lot in development over the years and, mm-hmm. I saw a lot of writers kind of strangle the life out of their ideas as they were sort of trying to fit their story into, you know, some of the formulas that are around screenwriting, things like the three-act structure or the hero's journey. And I could see them doing it in the in the sort of mistaken hope that that's what they thought we wanted, like that, that that's what I wanted as the script producer and that's what the broadcaster wanted. And, you know, the reality is, you know, we're not. We're not looking for that. In fact, a lot of the time, you know, the the attempt to sort of conform to these formulas, they mostly revealed how green a writer was. 
um, uh, rather than, you know, demonstrated that they could write. Generally, you know, a more experienced writer has moved on from those sorts of formulas and has found their own way mm. to, to write the scripts. Um, so I wanted to give emerging writers a way to sort of politely push back against the formulas of the three-act structure and the hero's journey, which are generally used by executives and broadcasters to sort of bully a writer into conforming and and generally oftentimes, you know, that what ends up happening is they produce fairly mediocre results because they're being forced to, you know, create a something that's quite formulaic. Um, you know, broadcasters will often say, you know, I want something edgy and surprising, but not too edgy and surprising. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, no one will ever come to you and say, I want something that's really conventional and, you know, predictable. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, you know, when, they, when they're pushing you towards these formulas, that's what you're going to get because mm. if you start out with something really conventional and predictable, like a formula, mm. um, by the time you've done a few drafts, it's, it's, it's going to be really bland after a few drafts and no one's going to want to make it. So I guess the, the impetus to write the book was to, to, to reassure people that there are other ways of approaching their story. They can find the, the true shape of their story, what their story is really about, without having to resort to formulas. Mm. Um, and, and, yeah, it was kind of just a, a lifeline to the writers that I work with a lot of the time to, you know, uh, believe in the story that you want to tell and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and communicate that. Which, which plays into the, the, the old adage that the best way to learn how to write screenplays is to read screenplays. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Reading, so like, it's the very best film school there is, or, you know, screenwriting school. It's yeah. just read the very best screenplays. Anything that's nominated for awards, anything that wins awards, whether you like that sort of movie or not, just read the screenplay and you'll learn so much. It's incredible. But you also, there is, I mean, I think all books about screenwriting and writing have all, it's not that the, the, they've got the rules for you to follow, but they've all got something that might chime with with how you think about your writing or how, or like you say, the, the, there's a difference between someone that's green, green behind the gills and someone that's been pounding away at the keyboard for 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. How you receive the notion and the ideas of what a story is. Cause there's always, for me, there's, I mean, something like say, save the cat, which was really helpful for me 12 years ago. Mm. I, I can't, I can't use it anymore. I, I, I look at the terms and I can only, you know, weird how they're imprinted on my brain, yeah. but they are made as a, they are like asking a demolitions expert how to build a building. Cause they're, they're from de- they're from like historical facts of deconstructing stories. You're right. You know, if you ask an architect to design a draw, design a building, yes, they've got a wealth of experience, but the new problem is the marshland it's built on the, the eroding seawall. These are all new things that the architect has got to come to grips with. Whereas yeah. you say, well, we built a building over here and it was just like this, you know, screenplays that, you know, you've got that bad metaphor, maybe, um, but, but you see what I mean? No, it's like, a really good metaphor. I've never heard it described that way. I, I like that. <laughs> I like that because so much of screenplay education is about, you know, looking at films that have already been made. Well, they're, they're not even talking about the screenplays. They're talking about the movies that mm. were made from the screenplay. So, you know, there's kind of this disconnect between uh, the process 
uh, and how it, it, it got to be a movie. Um, yeah. But also when people do, I also find as well is that they saying something happens on page 55 or something happens on page 32, or whatever might be the prescription. Mm-hmm. You kind of go, well, how did you feel? Not, not what, not what happened on that page. It's like, what did you feel? That's the reason you enjoy a film, not because yeah. you know it's how, which hopefully is, is a, a really lumpy segue into characters, uh, which is at the heart of what you're writing about in your Beyond the Hero's Journey. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to use my five times five minute format. I've got a really handy list. I am going to going to read the bits in in block letters that you're giving me. Um, and at the at five minutes, you will hear a dog barking. Hopefully, you will hear a dog barking. Um, let me tell me you can hear this. Oh yeah. Cool. Okay. That's, Hopefully, it won't scare my cat away. That's our polite. That's our, that, that's just basically me being passive aggressive because I can't tell you to stop talking when five minutes are up. It gives me a. But also, it's a, it's a kind of mastermind started to finish. You can by all means finish off your thought if you're in the middle of something. Um, it's no not. Uh, we're not. We're not, It's not dogma. It's just so we don't spend twenty-four minutes talking about one and then one minute on four things. Is is more or yeah, less. No more. worries. No worries. Okay, <laughs> sir. Well, I'll give you the floor now, which is to number one is it's about character arcs. Yeah. So the so the book essentially uh, is about character arcs, which is one of those terms that we all use these days. You know, it's not just film people, but average viewers as well. And I've even heard my mum uh, talk about character arcs in her favourite show. So if my mum is talking about character arcs, then, you know, it's basically gone mainstream. Mm. And I think one of the reasons is because either consciously or unconsciously, we all track character arcs in our favourite TV shows. And it's how we were able to sort of follow a character's emotional world over years and hundreds of episodes and empathise with their choices and, understand who they are and we mostly hear people talk about character arcs when they go wrong and the the character's choices you know they don't make sense anymore and I'm thinking of the the final season of Game of Thrones here people had a lot to say about the character's choices and that not really making sense anymore yeah um so the so the way I describe a character arc in the book is it's the emotional shape of a character's story so it's not just the external events, the plot points that happen to a character, it's also what's happening to them on the inside, what's happening to the character emotionally. And I argue in the book that understanding how character arcs work really expands the storytelling landscape you can explore as a writer. In fact, you know, I would say it's the most valuable tool in a screenwriter's toolkit. Um, but unfortunately, it's also one of the most misunderstood tools for writers. Okay. And the reason for that is a little storytelling idea called the hero's journey. Um, and I'm sure many of your listeners would have heard of this concept before, but for those who haven't, you know, here's a, here's a quick catch up. Um, in the mid 20th century, an American literature professor by the name of Joseph, Joseph Campbell, he claims he's discovered a recurring pattern in all the ancient myths from all the cultures of the world stretching back thousands of years. And he, he calls this pattern the monomyth, which basically like, literally means the one story. And he claims all cultures use this narrative pattern and it's broken up into three distinct parts with 17 distinct steps, which always involve a hero journeying from an ordinary everyday world into a sort of metaphorical 
special world where they they go through these great trials and difficulties until they emerge on the other side. And they're, they're not only triumphant on the other side of all these trials, but they are emotionally transformed. They are a different person. Mm. And so, you know, that's a good story. Like it's, that's pretty inspiring. Um, but Campbell's ideas don't really get much traction in academia at the time, partly because he's pretty selective about which myths he includes as examples. And he doesn't do any field research to support any of his claims. Um, so the hero's journey... I never knew that. Lies. Yeah, yeah, like academia just... Uh, anthropologists are just really not into Joseph Campbell. They, 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 he's a total amateur in their eyes. Okay. So the, the hero's journey, basically, it lies dormant for, you know, for you know 30 years until the 70s when a young guy called George Lucas, he uses... The hero's journey is a template for the first Star Wars film, and this changes everything. And ever since, pretty much every writing manual has claimed that the hero's journey, the three-act hero's journey, is the only story there is. Like literally, there is no other way to tell a story. The monomyth is the only story ever written, and if you try and do anything else, you will fail. That is the message of most of the books. What a terrifying but thought. Here's the thing, then um, this is the premise of my book, is the hero's journey, it's a fine story. It's good. You know, lots of great things can be made with a hero's journey style art, but the hero's journey is not some mythic pattern that unites all of storytelling across all of culture through all of time. It's just a character arc. It's, it's literally in the name, hero's journey, character mm. arc. And sure, it's a super popular one, particularly with Hollywood, but it's only one of many character arcs that writers intuitively use to find the emotional shape of their story. So, so you know, what do I mean by the shape of the story? Well, if you, if you strip away the claims about three acts and 17 steps, A Hero's Journey has two essential features to it. It's about a change character with an optimistic arc. So things work out okay in the story because the character emotionally changed. So, for example, if Luke Skywalker didn't look inside himself and <laughs> there's the dog, Carol, if he didn't look inside dog. himself and trust the Force, everything would be lost. So in a hero's journey, the most important problem to overcome is not the external to the hero, it's inside the hero. Yeah, so yeah, once yeah. they change, all will be well. But, of course you know, do all characters change? I argue in the book that there's many fantastic examples of really successful films where the protagonist does not change. In fact, they succeed because they don't change. So mm. Promising Young Woman, I think, is a great recent example. Jaws, Erin Brockovich, Alien, Moana, even Raiders of the Lost Ark. These characters win because they're stubbornly constant. And, you know, do, do all arcs have to end with a sense of optimistic triumph. Like, how does it? How does the hero's journey deal with the dark tragedy of, you know, The Godfather or Chinatown or Mulholland Drive, or you know, really ambivalent sort of stories where things are both good and bad, like Nomadland or The Father, or you know, Power Power of the Dog that we just saw, you know, at, mm. at, at the at the Academy Awards. So you know, these arcs don't feel triumphant in the way a hero's journey demands. So in the book. I explore, I, I explore some that, you know, have that hero's journey style arc 
It's about change character with an optimistic arc, but also explore lots of different arcs and how they go beyond the conventions of the hero's journey. So, yeah. I, I didn't make your five minute mark. I'm sorry about that. That's okay. Like I said, it's more it's more a guide. There's no it's not dogma. It's more to uh, okay. to keep us aware <laughs> that five minutes have passed. So they did, and we'll uh, we'll move on to the next next heading you give me. That yeah, sure. It's visual. The, the origins of the book hmm. um, were actually the weird little diagrams you'll see in each chapter, which map map out the the character arcs of each story. And hmm. I actually developed these diagrams many years ago when I was doing a master's with Jared Lee, who um, wrote Top of the Lake. And Jared was showing us all these crazy movies which didn't fit the typical three-act hero's journey. Hmm. And that all this, you know, that all the screenwriting books said there had to be a three-act hero's journey, but his films didn't fit that sort of thing. And I'm a pretty visual thinker, so I felt like I needed to picture the structure of the films we were discussing, but the only models I had for diagrams with things like the three-act paradigm or Freytag's triangle, you know, for mm. rising action, that sort of thing, and they didn't, they just didn't work, so I was a bit stuck. But as I was working this out, I realised that all these traditional diagrams put the emphasis on the plot points, and, you know, the external events, and they didn't map out the internal emotional journey that the character was on. So through a hell of a lot of trial and error, I started trying to map out both the external events as well as the internal choices the character was making and and mapping those out at the same time. And when I started to do this, I could see, like I could literally see the different character arcs each film made and how they were different from a typical hero's journey. And it was a bit of a revelation because it it told me I was onto something and, um, and, you know, the, the, the diagrams helped me to see the real shape of the story rather than assume it had to be crammed into a three-act hero's journey. So in the book, that's what I do. So each mm. chapter is three case studies of a, a particular sort of character arc, which are illustrated by diagrams showing the unique structure of each story. And now I realise, you know, this is a podcast, so I'll, I'll share with you a writing technique to help visualise these diagrams. Yeah. So... Imagine two parallel lines. One line is the character's external world, so their friends, family, their job, the community around them, their environment, all those tangible things. The other line is their internal world, their beliefs, their values, their desires, fears, hopes, you know, all those intangible things that are inside us. Now, at the beginning of the story, these two lines, they're in parallel. They're like, they're like train tracks, and that's because... The character's world is not changing. The, the situation with their family and friends, it might be good, it might be bad, but it's stable. The same with their internal world. You know, everything's stable. That's at the beginning. But a story really kicks in when something in the external world of the protagonist changes. So maybe their marriage breaks down or they lose their job or someone dies or whatever. The point is that their external world's heads off in a different direction so it's no longer running in parallel to their internal beliefs and values and hopes and all those sorts of things and there's a gap opening up the further it heads off in a new direction and the gap will grow unless something will change and this is the conflict that's at the heart of Mm. every narrative the external world is at odds with the character's internal world and it's this dynamic that creates 
you know, the, the unique character arc within each story. And that's what the diagrams try to illustrate. So, for example, in some stories, the character will need to emotionally change to resolve the conflict. So, you know, Star Wars is a great example of that. Uh, Lady Bird is, so is Moonlight. Um, so you'll see the line representing their internal world changing direction to bring things back into balance. But other times the character won't change enough to completely resolve things. So there'll still be a gap at the end of the story. So, you know, there's still be conflict there. So the, the social network is a great example of that. Nomadland, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Can I can I throw an example at you? Just just so, so I feel like I've understood you because I, 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 yeah. I, I, I've just finished watching this TV series Top Boy on Netflix. And, oh, great show. And there's a wonderful scene where where a guy who's in prison and wants to turn on the, the gang leader, who's been his friend for 20 years. So you've got two characters that haven't changed at all. And what changes their, what changes the guy who's in prison's mind is to do with bringing the external world into his criminal world. Now, before, you'd only yeah. ever seen him with his baby, and he was very good with his baby, but he was servicing the gang with cars and whatever he did. And the gang leader says... What about your mother and what about your sister? And he says, they're not part of it. And he goes, that's not how this works. And then suddenly the character who you thought was going to get out of the criminal world and get out of prison by God with his mating has now to cope with the idea that it, what decision he makes next could mean the death of his sister and his mother. Now, before yeah, that yeah. conversation started, that character didn't have to consider that option until it was brought up, and then suddenly their whole mindset has to change in that moment, even though they thought they knew what, what the future held. Suddenly the future's bad, and they can affect it, or they cannot. It's, you know, the choice is stay in prison or kill your sister and mum, which are not, you know, they're not good decisions, but we knew enough about the character. Yeah, you can feel the, I haven't I haven't seen the, the new seasons, and I can't wait to see it, but you can feel the tension in a, you know, in a scenario like you're describing, the external world is putting all this pressure on the character's internal world. They've got to make this impossible choice. Mm. And sometimes in a, in a film, that impossible choice will mean doing something, uh, making a choice that they would never have made at another time in their life. Um, and, and their values and their desires, and uh, they change as a result of that. Mm. And they start to become a different person at that point. And it's those crucial moments of choice in the story, which, you know, the, you've just given us a really great example where a character is being forced to make a very difficult choice. And that's that's what really hooks us into a story. It's like we're thinking, well, what's he going to do? You know, is he is he going to compromise himself or is he going to compromise his family? Or how is he going to choose between these oh. two impossible things? Um, yeah, great example. Yeah. You've perfectly understood it. That's good to hear. It's, a, it's just, it's a, a, a literally, what, it's no big spoiler because it's, 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 it's not a main character, but I just thought because the character kept appearing, he was, he was in a lot of the episodes, so he's present. Yeah. And it just felt like yeah. one of those moments because in a way, just thinking about it more, is that he's reminded of who he is by the criminal. Mm -hmm. He's saying you cannot just be going witness protection and be on Civvy Street. There are consequences. Mm. Yeah. If you stay a criminal, 
there are only criminal consequences, which is a, it's like a shit or a shit, shit stick or a shit sandwich. Which one are you going to eat? You know, it's like, yeah. it's not, they're not options. Um, the next, the next one about your book is it's practical. Tell us more. I knew with a a book like this, one that challenges a lot of screenwriting orthodoxies, there was, there's going to be a lot of people out there wondering, you know, how do I use this, uh, these ideas in what I'm writing, be it a feature film or a TV series or a play or a podcast or whatever. So I spent a whole section of the book, you know, walking the reader through exactly how to do that. And the great thing about character arcs is that not only you know, do they work on feature films, but also other storytelling formats too, including television, which is where I do most of my work. Hmm. And in fact, character arcs is the number one tool for screenwriter, TV screenwriters. And it's, it's how we think. We don't really think in terms of three-act structures or heroes' journeys. And there's a very, very simple reason for this. It's because TV stories are very, very, very long. <laughs> and not even the writers necessarily know how they're going to end. And as a result, we can't be thinking in terms of a rigid three-act hero's journey, you know, you know, three acts and 17 stages or whatever. We just wouldn't know when one stage ended and another began as we went from episode to episode or season to season because we're not sure exactly where the end is. And, you know, besides the length of TV stories, you know, TV characters themselves are often these anti-heroes who don't have a redemptive hero's journey. So, you know, Walter White and Marty Bride and Don Draper and Selena Myers, you know, these are not nice people. Um, and not only that, you know, TV stories aren't always just about one hero. They're an ensemble medium. So you don't always follow just Walter White and Breaking Bad. You know, there's not just one hero. There's also Jesse and Skylar and Hank and Marie and all these other people. Mm. So everyone's got an arc, which is why character arcs are super useful in TV. So in a practical way, I talk about how to think about each character, not just the protagonist, and map out the shape of their arc across the story, be it a feature film or a TV season or or just an episode or whatever. And what you're trying to do there is to build the arc of the character gradually and consistently. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. They don't radically change into someone else from one scene to the next or from one episode to the next, you know, their, their emotional world is coherent and it makes sense, but at the same time it's not predictable. That's that's what you're aiming for. Mm. And the way we do that is by looking at the same dramatic elements I was talking about before, you know, what's changing in the character's external world, how does this put pressure on their internal world, what they hope for, what they want, what they believe, 
Will they change their inner beliefs and values uh, to fix the problem? Will they hang tight and resist? You know, what's the shape of their arc? Will things be looking optimistic at the end of their arc or will they be looking pessimistic or ambivalent, you know, somewhere in between? And it's exactly the same principles outlined in the case studies that I do elsewhere in the book. So it builds on what the reader already knows and gives practical exercises to apply the ideas. Um, and, and apart from that, that process of building character arcs, I also spend chapter exploring how to work on developing your own unique voice as a writer. And this is rarely talked about in rarely. screenwriting books. It's very neglected, yeah. and but it's so important. It's more so than ever. It's It used to be that the job of the TV writer was to blend in and not have a distinctive voice, but the opposite is now true. You know, a showrunner wants to know what unique perspective and approach to storytelling you're offering the room that you're coming mm. into. They want, they want there to be differences between the writers, different strengths and different perspectives, not necessarily exactly the same. And once again, you know, an understanding of character arcs can help you find out what sorts of stories you're drawn to, which ones you're good at, what sorts of characters and conflicts you connect with and how you might approach them in, a, in an original way. Because, you know, every character arc, it has a particular feel to it. You know, an uplifting story about a change character with an optimistic arc, you know, something like Star Wars or Lady Bird, has a very different feel than the gritty toughness of like a, a constant character with an ambivalent arc. So I'm thinking of uh, Amour, uh, the French film Amour or mm. Winter's Bone. You know, these are really tough, constant characters who just grind their way through really difficult situations. So the types of character arcs you create tell you something about how you see the world hmm. and the type of story you want to tell and the themes that you're interested in. Like, I don't specifically know if Phoebe Waller-Bridge was thinking about character arcs when she wrote Fleabag, but the style of arcs that she writes define a very particular voice. You know, she effortlessly combines vulnerability and comedy and profanity in this super original way. Hmm. And that's what you're trying to do when you write. You, you want to be saying something you, you may not be saying something entirely revolutionary it's, that's very hard to do but you at least want to find a way to say it in an original voice so um, that's what I've tried to help uh, show the reader what how to do that in a practical way it's it's interesting I, I, I mean this isn't begin to compare what I was doing with with your book but just to again just for helping me mm. understand get, demonstrate my understanding of what you're saying is that I did some sessions with some undergraduates on creative writing and they were telling me their stories. And the first yeah. thing I did was just write down each character. I didn't write. I said, I don't, I'm not interested in the story. I, I want to know who's in it. And I was like, what is their relationship between each other? You know, right. you know, and then, and then suddenly you have this mind map and I said, and there's, yeah. there's your, that's your story. You know, he hates her. She loves him. They're jealous of that. And, she wants to win the yeah. World Cup or whatever it might be. And suddenly you've got a picture of your story beginning to emerge because you've got some tension. And I said, wouldn't it be better if that was his sister, not his girlfriend? And suddenly they're like, poof, this becomes yeah. a different story. But but it's the, the character that character begins to become more dramatic than just simply another flatmate, yeah. say, for example. <laughs> Yeah, because what you're what you're describing there is uh, a very character-based approach to 
you know, you're, you're building the story out from the characters. And that's very much what, you know, the book does when you're talking about character arcs. Mm. You know, when you talk about a character's external world, a big part of that external world is who's around them, who's their family, who's their friends, who's their boss, who's uh, who they're in, in a relationship with. Yeah. And what are the what are the, the the tensions? What are the conflicts that come out of those relationships? Uh, what you know, and how do they feel towards those people? And so, you know, yeah, you're you're building the story out from the characters uh, rather than the other way around. And you'll find a much more organic relationship between the the plot and the character uh, if you if you build it from the character out. Oftentimes, I mean, that's one of the reasons why, you know, very plot-driven stories tend, tend to have quite thin characters. The mm. characters are only there to serve this, this plot that's playing out. Whereas if the story has been built from those characters, it can't help but serve both of them at the same time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because it's like the wonderful thing about how you mentioned Breaking Bad before. It's amazing how we can feel sympathy because of the cancer of his decision. Yeah to deal drugs. Mm. There's no other, there's, <laughs> there's nothing about that that that, says, that suggests on paper that you definitely should. But because the character mm. we learn about first is this particular person. Yeah. And their decisions that you're going, no way. It's it's so interesting, Breaking Bad. It's, it's interesting the things that they, it's such a great show and, um, you know, brilliantly plotted and amazing characters. But it, it always struck me that, um, that a part of the of that world that they deliberately left out, you know, smart. I think I think they were smart to do this, but they left out the victims, the the, the addicts, I guess, hmm. of the drugs that they were selling. You never you saw the criminals, you saw the people selling the drugs and stuff. You saw a little bit of it with Jesse, you know, the addiction, hmm. but you didn't see the wider world and the impact they were having with their drug selling. Because I think if you did see it. You just wouldn't be able to sympathise with Walter true, White anymore. True. It would cancel out the cancer thing. But, <laughs> Absolutely cancel but it out. When, when, I, remember, I went back and what, I've watched the first episode a few times, and that first episode is a blueprint that stands up as the characters mm. it introduces yeah. right the way through all five seasons, which blew my mind going back. Because yeah. there's things like, I, mean, I remember the, I think it was probably Bloody Season, beginning of season three, when I realised the sister had the thing about purple. Go back to the first episode, it's there. Isn't it? Yeah. Wow. And I was just like, poof, this is, it was always there. And and so those kind you know, I mean, it's, it's hats off to Vince Gilligan, I suppose, in that sense. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's it's brilliant. But that that plays into that idea of building out from characters and and the story emerging out of out of what they what they do and who they are, as opposed to I have a story about a drug dealer who used to be a teacher, which doesn't sound nearly as appealing. Right, so number four, it's diverse. What is it? What What do you mean in terms of that for in reference to your book? Choosing the films that I use as case studies was one of the most you know pleasurable and most difficult things in pulling putting the book together. It was pleasurable mm. because I'd get to watch all of these great films again and rediscover them and think about them and. I wouldn't just watch them, you know, once. I'd watch them three and four and five times and take notes each time. So it was a really deep dive to each of these films. And from that, 
a list of contenders started to emerge um, of, of films that I should analyse. But it was a really long list. It was far too long. And so I needed a way to sort of focus the material. So I, I came up with, a you know, some criterion. And firstly, I wanted to make sure I was mostly talking about recent films. So mm. stuff in the last five years, you know, Moonlight, Burning, um, Lady Bird, Midsummer. I think I'm going to submit that's a real, it's a real strength of your book. That was one thing that shone for me. Is oh, that, that we were we were looking at modern we were looking at films that we hadn't really looked at so it felt it felt fresh in that sense already. Oh, that's great to know. It's um, you know I I wanted to make sure that there were films that were still sort of swimming around in our sort of collective consciousness, I mm. guess. But I also wanted to include some classics, uh, but not too many. You know, just one per chapter. You know, stuff like The Godfather or Aaron Brockovich or you know Mulholland Drive. And the reason for this balance between recent and classic is because these days. With so much to watch, it's very, very hard to make a list of films that the majority of people have seen. Absolutely. Um, it's virtually impossible. And I know this from teaching a class of film students. This is film students uh, who had never seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> so, no. You know, that's that's true. It, it happened. It happened. So um, from there I, I sort of whittled things down by choosing films that had either had critical and or commercial success Mm-hmm. Ideally, both. So, you know, Moonlight fits that category. Uh, did extremely well commercially and and uh, and um, critically. Moana and Hidden Figures were big commercial sec- successes, but they also played well with critics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my list is starting to get shorter now, but I've got some really dis- difficult decisions to make. And I I thought about the purpose of the book, which in many ways is about inspiring writers to step outside the norm and tell stories that are more authentic and more original and don't lean on mainstream Hollywood formulas. And, in fact, the the title of the book in the original Australian edition was Beyond the Hero's Journey, A Guide for Writers with a Different Story to Tell. So I wanted that sentiment to be reflected strongly in the choice of films. Hmm. It felt right for the underlying themes I was exploring. So... I, I tried to achieve a balance of films by filmmakers from a variety of backgrounds who were telling stories about characters from a variety of backgrounds. Mm. As a result, half of the films I use as case studies are by underrepresented storytellers. So, you know, it's female, queer, persons of colour, Indigenous. And I think it's important for the health of the art form to acknowledge and actively promote the very obvious fact that there are a variety of stories to be told and cultural perspectives to be represented. And Mm. depending on where you're from, you tell stories in different ways. And commercially it makes a lot of sense these days too because storytelling is more global and diverse than ever and audiences understand that in a way that was not possible when I was growing up. Like when I was growing up, films with subtitles could only be accessed at a few screenings at a film festival or by international mail order. Now... You know, Parasite wins the Academy Awards and we're all watching Squid Game. It's a worldwide sensation. And, you know, we're not constrained by language or culture as much anymore uh, as we used to be. Uh, And audiences enjoy the differences they're seeing in terms of storytelling and styles and cultural perspectives. So I think it's important we acknowledge this when we're talking about what makes a good story or teaching about our art form. And if anything, I wish I'd had time to make the selection of films even more diverse. I mean, the majority of films, they're still from Hollywood, hmm. such as my background and my taste. Um, 
And there are only two films from Asia, which is absolutely embarrassing considering where I live in the world. Yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe I'll get an opportunity to fix that if, if this gets to a second edition. And, you know, and if it does, then, I, you know, drive my car will be in there for sure. So, um, yeah. I, th- I mean, it's interesting, just as a, as a sidebar, really, I think that as much as the birth of the streamer has been a huge threat to what was the theatrical window and theatrical release, um, as, as we knew it, which, you know, would have been the world of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, would have been the world of Pulp Fiction and so on. Has the, the upshot has been a ready access to world cinema like you've never had in the mainstream. I mean, that that I've watched so... I mean, in, in Britain on Netflix, there's so much Spanish genre that would have been so rarely available um, in not on normal circumstances, let alone stuff coming out of Singapore and stuff, just things on my doorstep that just wouldn't have got a look in just because they're Spanish, whereas... They 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 form the, a natural part of you know the horror section of Netflix or Amazon. You know it's uh, and it's very welcome. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's uh, like uh, people are getting used to watching subtitles. Hmm. <laughs> I never would have believed it. But but also what we can learn from I don't know where this goes. Whether or not we we end up with some sort of one monolithic way of telling stories. If we all you know we draw from each other, but hopefully not because I think. I find it really interesting when you see how a story is being approached from a different cultural perspective. You, you begin, yeah. to, you begin to go, "Oh, that wouldn't have been allowed." <laughs> you know, I remember yeah. the first time I watched some Singapore cinema, and you were like, "Going five minutes ago, this was like blood and gore, and now it's melodrama. What? what where's this? What's going on here? Is this allowed?" I know, they, it's that switching up the the tone is, is yeah. a very um, it's yeah it, it's a, it's an approach that and I, I'm not that familiar with it either but I'm getting I'm kind of getting into it and it's about tuning into a different way of telling yeah. the story and you know I think in the last five years or so you know some of the best films in the Academy Awards have been the foreign films mm. like you know, Parasite wins Drive My Car was up for the the prize this year and Drive My Car's a it's a perplexing film that's so interesting and and uh, and so complex and and it's just telling a story in a different way and it's really connected with an international audience. But like last year, another round, I, I thought that was the film of the year. It was incredible. Um, the worst person in the world. Um, you know, that's that's done incredibly well. People have really connected with that. So yeah, look, there's there's, there's other ways of telling stories and uh, and you know we we live in a an abundance of opportunity to find out about it. Indeed, indeed. Now, finally, then, number five is it's got extra chapters. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? (laughs) It does. It does have extra chapters. So when I finished the Australian edition of the book, I thought, okay, that's it. I have nothing else to say about screenwriting at all, like nothing original anyway. Yeah. But when I launched the book, I was... I was doing lots of events and interviews and lectures and those sorts of things. And, and you get talking to people about the ideas in your book and whether they agree or not. And, and it, it gets you thinking. And I realized I did have a few other things I wanted to say when it came to screenwriting. And it had to do with two notoriously difficult types of characters, which virtually anyone who knows anything about writing will warn you off and say, don't do it. It <laughs> won't work. And, 
you, you know, you're totally wasting your time. And those two character types are reactive characters and passive characters. Now, you know, the, these two character types often get mixed together, which is reason enough to do a, a couple of extra ta- chapters yeah, to yeah, clarify yeah. the difference. But I also wanted to just test the assumption that reactive and passive characters are not worth the time and energy that they, you know, that they, they, they don't work. And I, I wondered if my ideas about character arcs might help. So it was a way of continuing to just test my ideas and see if they work, but also see how far beyond the hero's journey, you know, we could get. So, um, well, you know, like, like let's define what we're talking about here a little bit. So, like, we'll start with reactive characters. Um, so a reactive character is a character who's making decisions um, making choices to fix their problems, just like in a hero's journey. But, you know, stuff stuff is going wrong in their external world, so they're making internal choices to fix things. But the difference is with a reactive character, they're sort of making things up as they go along. They don't really have a plan. It's it's uh, What I mean is they're not really driving the narrative, and the nar- it's, it's like the narrative is happening to them, and they never really gain control of it. So, it's, it's like a and then, and then, and then, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And a great example of this um, that I cover in the book is Midsummer, which is a terrific and absolutely terrifying art horror film from a couple of years ago that I'm sure many people have seen. And in that film, the main character, Danny, she's attending a creepy pagan celebration with her friends and she chooses to take part in this pagan celebration. But her choices have little impact on on the direction of the story. She's just sort of being swept along in the wake of other people's decisions, like her boyfriend or her friends or the people running the festival. And so for the vast majority of the story, Danny is very reactive. Uh, she's not she's not seizing the sword as uh, and taking control as the hero's journey would expect her to do. So, you know, reactive characters make choices, but their choices don't have much impact on the direction of the story. When it comes to passive characters, they don't make choices at all. They just drift along, avoiding whatever conflict in this in there is in the story and ignoring the problem and hoping it will go away. So an example of this I talk about in the book is Dead Poet Society, where the main character, Todd, you know, he's a student at a private school with a very excitable English teacher, played by Robin Williams. Uh, the, the teacher is Mr. Keating. And he encourages his students to express themselves through poetry and art. But Todd mostly hangs back and watches as his friends, you know, seize the day, as the, the teacher says, or seize the sword, as, as the hero's journey would say. And so Todd's a very passive character. He doesn't make strong choices. He makes choices, but they're, they're tiny choices. And he spends his whole time sitting back and watching his friends make bold choices and risking everything to express themselves. That is until the end of the film, where in this, in defiance of the school, in a very famous scene, Todd stands on his desk and salutes Mr Keating, who has just been fired because of a tragic accident at the school. And it's an incredibly telling moment in the film where the main character, Todd, who has stayed utterly passive and avoided making any strong choices, so he's standing up, he's defying the school, it's a massive choice. And it's the point of the whole film. It's why it's so incredibly moving when shy Todd finally gathers the strength to make a choice and defend Mr Keating, regardless of the consequences. If he'd been on a hero's journey, 
it would have been a very different story where he was much more in control of it. He'd have to have been in and more conflict, wouldn't he, with Robin Williams and things like that to make it work? Absolutely, absolutely. It just would have been a completely different story. Yeah. So it's an example of a passive character where it works. It's like, you know, that, that scene is incredible. Um, it's the same in Midsummer. You know, at the end of that film, Danny, who has been so reactive all the way through, she finally makes a choice of her own in the final ceremony at the, the Pagan Festival and it frees her of all this grief that she's been carrying through the whole film and you know finally she makes a choice that matters um so in the extra chapters i explore those two types of characters reactive and passive characters and you know and they 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 go way beyond where the hero's journey would normally i mean this go. is i mean this i think in a way it's it's interesting that it's your extra chapters because in some senses this is this is the rev- the revelation to me in terms because one of the things I remember butting up against in early sort of writing lessons mm-hmm. was the notion of your, your character's too reactive, your character's too passive. Now, if you're writing, sure. if you're writing horror, a lot of horror, if you go back to most horror films, you have a passive character. You have a passive group of characters because the horror yeah. is about what's coming, not what they necessarily do to deserve it or anything. The whole point is we've seen the bomb, it's ticking, When's it going to explode? So their their ability to avoid it or whatever in a lot of horror films isn't to do with picking up a sword and going out fighting to 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 break it off because they don't they don't know it's coming. The audience does. I completely agree. It's uh, in a lot of horror films the characters end up being largely reactive a lot of the mm. time. Most of them end up dying. Usually, there's only one character towards the very end. Yeah. That gains control over what's happening, that who isn't just reacting to the next problem that's being thrown at them. Um, and and in, in fact, in, in a lot of in a lot of storytelling, you know, generally, you know, the, the protagonist of your story, at the beginning of the story, they usually are a bit reactive because mm. they're trying to understand the problem that they're up against. Depending on the story that you're dealing with, you know, they'll at some point they'll they'll take control of the situation. But in the examples we've just been talking about now, like, you know, Midsummer, the Danny character, it works very well, that film. It's it's a complete success on so many levels. But it, the, one of the reasons for its success is because of how reactive Danny's character is all the way along. So when she finally makes a decision at the end, it has all this emotional resonance about her escaping the coercive control of a destructive relationship that she's in. And it, it's got real power, real emotional power in it even though she's just been swept along through the whole story. I mean, like the big Lebowski does the same thing. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. The big Lebowski is not in control of anything in that story. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's so, much, it's so much fun because of that. I think it's interesting as well, you picked up on Midsummer because that was um, something that I remember listening to Ari Aster talk about it. And he, he, he basically said, it's a folk horror. You understand where it's probably going to lead isn't going to be pleasant. So come along for the ride, so to speak. And that's kind of what makes it brilliant, is that if you if you accept that's what you're on, then if it had been if Florence Pugh's character had been constantly questioning what's going on at the Swedish retreat for pagans, it would have been annoying. Because it's either, yeah. you know, shit, I'll get off yeah. the pot. You know, it's like it's not whereas I mean, the other thing that was brilliant, the way the way I thought the way that Midsummer set that up is that we've got them taking hallucinogens at the get-go 
And yeah. you could argue that they're kind of numb to the unreality and the wildness of what's going on. So, or is it that they're seeing some, you could, as an audience member, you could leap and go, is there any of this really happening? Are we just seeing, yeah. which obviously as it gets further towards the end, you realise, oh, it's real. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's no escaping this. And then when she does make that, that big commitment that we've not really seen coming, it feels really powerful, much like the I'd never thought of with, when, when you picked up the Dead Poets Society one, that was, again, it's that, it's that notion of the big action towards the end is, is how you understand that character has been not, not just passive. They've actually been actively observing, but, but you've been aware mm. of that observing. Yeah. Yeah. They're not, they're not making the story happen. They're watching the story. They're mm. a voyeur in the story. Um, so, you know, they're, they're still making choices, but they're small choices. They're not the sorts of choices that that shape the direction of the story, which is traditionally what mm. you look for in a in a protagonist. Um, you know, that's why they, they have the name protagonist. They, they're active. They're doing things. They're, they're making things happen. One of the other films that I'd talk about is um, Being There. Uh, I don't know if you remember the, that Peter Sellers film from the 70s, but it's a, it's a terrific film where... His character is utterly passive through the entire thing because he doesn't he doesn't comprehend what's happening around him, uh, and it's very very effective. Um, the father as well. I, I I do a breakdown of the father and talk about that in terms of a reactive character. So the Anthony Hopkins film, the father, the the main character has dementia and doesn't really understand the the world around him anymore. He he can't recognise people and he, he can't recognise where he is or what's happening. But he wants to do something about mm. it, but the world is slippery. And so he can, all he can do is react to whatever's happening around him. And that's part of the power of that film is that the main character can't get a grip on his situation and can't do anything about it. He's utterly helpless. So that reactive quality... When in, I mean, I, I I make the point in the in the chapter that you know reactive characters and passive characters approach them with caution. Like mm. advice is good, they are very hard to make work, but when they do work, they can be super inspiring and and really really insightful. And you know, you, they can be very very sympathetic characters, even though they don't they're not heroic in the traditional sense. Mm. Um, you know, I I think of you know Todd from. Dead Poet Society is just a perfect example of a passive character because what he eventually does at the end is so inspiring, um, even though he's been so ineffectual through the rest of the story. And it's because of that, you know, it's because of that action at the end. Yeah, so it was a lot of fun writing those two chapters, actually. It was, um, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> it was a bit of a challenge. <laughs> I get him. Well, yeah, like you say, there, there, there is there, there is caution to be had, but, but I think, and I don't think for one minute the horror films are full of, passive characters but and reactive characters but they they do at least have 50 percent passive reactive characters in some way shape yes. or form in many in many yeah. of the in many of the great horror films you know you you don't get to you run away from the problem it's a bit like um you don't understand the problem that's yeah. why you have to run because it's like it's supernatural or it's it's, it's a bit like thrillers seen. isn't it in thrillers you have a character who's sort of who's running away from a problem and then eventually they have to run to the problem. And and that's kind of horror mm-hmm. films is kind of a bigger bang version of that in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. 
Well, look, sir, I've I've had uh, more than enough of your time. I'm realising it's late where later where you are than when we started, um, <laughs> and that's going to eat into tomorrow for you. It just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast to talk about your book, Beyond the Hero's Journey, creating, crafting powerful original character arcs for the screen. Um, I will put a link in the show notes so people can get it. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Stuart. This has been lots of fun. Great talking. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.